Church family, did you enjoy that hymn the choir sang for us this morning? And that was uh, very difficult to sing that without any musical accompaniment. Randy, fantastic job in leading the choir. Thank you, choir, for, for pointing us to the truth of the gospel that God so loved the world. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13 as we continue to make our way through this incredible revelation of, of God to his people and God's relationship with his people. You'll remember just a few weeks ago we concluded the 10th plague. That's the death of all the firstborn children where the death angel came by and did not find the blood on the doorposts or on the lintels. And then we had this rather lengthy conversation from the Lord to Moses to the nation of Israel about how they are to participate, rightly participate in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. And then we get a recounting of God's expectation for his people as it regards Passover last week in Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 through 51. And then today here in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 16, we get a repeat of the expectations of God concerning the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you might be wondering, hey, help me understand the timeline of what exactly is taking place here. If you, you remember in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40 and 41, we read these words. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So the nation of Israel, they have started according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, they have started that journey. They are making their way out of the land of Egypt. And then now all of a sudden, verse 43, through Exodus chapter 13, verse 16, it's almost like Moses took a time out. I know we're on this journey, but time out. I want you to rightly understand something. And in fact, we can understand why Moses has taken a time out. Of course, there would be incredible excitement. There'd be a sense of rejoicing that the nation of Israel is finally headed to that place that God had promised them years ago. We go back to Genesis chapter 12 and we see God's promise to Abram and then repeat it again to his offspring, Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, and by extension to the rest of the nation of Israel, that God was going to provide for them their own land. They were on a journey to Canaan's land. And they've had their own time out, if you will, for 430 years. They've been down in Egypt. But now as they make this journey away from Egypt toward Canaan land, Moses stops the narrative, if you will, for a very specific purpose. Moses wants to make sure, Moses wants to ensure that the nation of Israel 
understands why. He wants him to understand the theological construct behind what God is currently doing in their lives, and he wants them to understand that. He wants them to get the why. He wants them to comprehend the why, and not just the why in the moment. You'll notice in this text, Moses isn't solely concerned or simply concerned that the nation of Israel understand why at the moment. Moses is concerned that the nation of Israel understand why for the entirety of her journey with God. Moses wants to make sure that the nation of Israel understands why generations down the road. And in like manner, friend, we too are on a journey. Like Israel on a journey away from Egypt, we're on a journey away from the world, and at one point in our lives, we were all stuck in Egypt. We were all stuck in the world. And at some moment, on a very day, at a very time, the Lord redeemed our lives through faith and trust and hope in the person of Jesus. And since that glorious day, we've been on a journey. But if we don't regularly remember why, if we aren't reminded often of why, the temptation is that of the hymn writer. We're prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. And so what has God done for us? He's not only saved us and redeemed us, he's given us the why. He's helped us understand so that along this journey, we might be reminded of that moment of redemption. And so the Lord begins this moment for Israel here in Exodus chapter 43, and it continues down to Exodus chapter 16, Exodus chapter 13, verse 16. And then notice we pick up in verse 17. Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land. So Exodus 13, 17, in large way, connects right back to chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. The nation of Israel have left Egypt, and now the narrative of that journey continues here in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. But in the middle, we have the why. We saw that last week with Passover. The Lord is reminding the nation of Israel that he has redeemed them, that he has brought them to salvation. Why has God done that? Why did God redeem his people? Why is God bringing them to salvation? Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, because you belong to me. We are God's people. And then look what he does in verses 3 through 10. In verses 3 through 10, we learn that one of the purposes of God's redemption for his people is that we might live 
holy lives. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was given to the nation of Israel that they might remember on a yearly basis that God has indeed called them to holiness. And then we conclude in verses 11 through 16 with the why. We conclude in the same way that we began last week with a reminder that God has redeemed us. So this morning we reflect together on this eternal truth from this passage of Scripture. God has redeemed us, a people that belong to Him so that we might live holy lives. God has redeemed us, a people that belong to Him so that we might live holy lives. Look as he defines this beginning in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. We need a daily reminder that we belong to God. How many times along the journey of parenting have you told your child to do something and they ask the question, why? And you've responded with something along the line, I said so or you belong to me. Or particularly when the kids ask, hey, can I go do so-and-so? And you say to the child, no. And they say, well, wait a minute, this isn't fair because my best friend X over here, they're doing the same thing and their parents let them do it. Why can't I do it? And how do you respond? Because you belong to me. So-and-so over here doesn't belong to me. I don't have a right, nor is there any sense of expectation that I can tell this other kid or these other sets of parents what they can and cannot do with Junior. But for you, you belong to me, and I am going to tell you what you can do. This is what God is doing. God is giving to the nation of Israel a reminder of exactly who They are. Look how he says it, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate, make holy, dedicate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now we're going to learn the reason for that as we get into verses 11 through 16. But suffice it to say at this moment, God is reminding the nation of Israel through the consecration of the firstborn that they ultimately belong to the Lord. God is both creator and savior. And because he is both creator and savior, he and he alone has the right, the sole right, the only right to lay out the expectation of exactly what Israel is to do and not do. Why? Because Israel belongs to the Lord. And look what he does now in verses 3 through 10. God is going to lay out for the nation of Israel exactly what they are to do. And as we reflect on this narrative, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we've already seen this back in chapter 12, but here in chapter 13, verses 3 through 10, we are given this recounting of the Feast of Unleavened Bread so that the nation of Israel, so that you and I might remember 
We are to live holy lives. God has given to you and me as believers an expectation of how we are to live, not based on who you are, not based on who I am, solely and completely based on who he is. God has given us that right, you remember, because he's creator and he's savior. He's reminding the nation of Israel, you live holy lives. Look look how he tells them in verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from the place. And by the way, I would encourage you as you read throughout the entirety of the, the Pentateuch for sure, but all throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see this phrase repeated time and time and time and time again. And even in this narrative of our text today, you're going to see it repeated three or four times. Remember. What's he calling them to remember? God has saved them. The Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you're going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. What shall you tell your son? It is because the Lord saved whom? What does the text say? Me. The Lord saved The Lord did this for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute and at its appointed time from year to year. He's reminding them that he's brought them out of Egypt for a very specific purpose. See, the leaven was to be a reminder of the need for them to live holy lives. What did the leaven represent? You might remember from Exodus chapter 12. The leaven was to remind them of the sin of Egypt. It was to remind them of their captivity, of of being down in, in Egypt. So this command for them to rid themselves of leaven for this period of time was a reminder, a continual reminder, a yearly reminder for the nation of Israel that they were called by God to leave Egypt behind. That they were called by God to leave that sin behind. Why? Because God had redeemed them. Friends, in like manner, not just once a year, Read the New Testament and we hear Peter defining who we are. We are a holy nation. We are reminded regularly time and time again throughout the New Testament 
of exactly who we are before God, of what our posture, our heart's posture is before the Father, we are reminded we are a holy people. And isn't it interesting that to do this in a very specific month? Now there's something unique about this specific month. Of course, this name gets changed. Someone asked me about this several weeks ago when we were in Exodus chapter 12. You'll notice here in your Bibles and, and in my Bible, verse 4, today in the month of Abib, we later hear a different month mentioned in the Old Testament of Nisan, and that's the same month, same time of, uh, time of year, just changed uh, due to language and Akkadian influence from their time in Babylonian captivity. But this is the springtime of the year. What's happening in the farming culture, the animal husbandry of Israel during the springtime of the year? Little lambs are being born. Little kids are being birthed. And we'll hear in just a few moments there is a sacrifice that is to take place with these lambs or these kids. And what is that ultimate sacrifice pointing us to? Exodus chapter 13, verse, Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 through 51, the ultimate sacrifice that Christ will make on our behalf. So in God's economy, God's timetable, God is bringing the nation of Israel out at a very specific time, and, and everything about God's timetable has a purpose. Everything about God's timetable has, a, has an image that is to serve in the hearts and minds of the nation of Israel that they might continually remember what God has done. So they're reminded through the birthing of these young animals and the ultimate sacrifice and through the celebration of unleavened bread that God is indeed calling them to be reminded that they are a holy nation. That they are a group of people that are to be separate from the rest of the world. And even look what the text of Scripture says. You are to remind your children. You are to remind your son. Look at verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. See, God is reminding the nation of Israel that they are to forever keep the purpose of salvation before the next generation. They are to forever keep the intended purpose and goal of salvation before the next generation. They are to forever tell their children of exactly what God has done for them. In other words, they are to tell their children the why. See, there's a fine line in Christianity. There's a fine line between living our lives from a position of conviction versus legalism. There's a fine line there. If we're not careful, we'll cross that bridge 
and we just give our kids a bunch of rules. Don't turn the TV on. Don't listen to that music station. Don't wear that outfit. Don't look at me like that, or whatever it is, right? Just keep firing it off at them. And we never tell our children why. We never tell them why we pray. We never tell them why we show up for church on a weekly basis. Other than, son, if you're going to live in this house, you're going to church. Did you tell them why? Can they see the why in you, mom and dad? Grandma, grandpa, have you taken the opportunity to sit down with your grandchildren and explain to them why you instilled with inside their parents a right understanding of gathering with the people of God? You've told your children, no, you're not going to see that movie. Did you tell them why? Did you tell your children, no, we're not going to listen to that music? Did you tell them why? Did you tell your children, no, we're not going to, we're not going to watch that TV show at this house? Did you stop and tell them why we're not going to watch that TV show at this house? See, friends, God is calling his people to be reminded that they are to live holy lives. And the reason why we don't watch certain movies and the reason why we don't listen to certain music and the reason why we don't dress like certain, or wear certain dress uh, outfits and, 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 and attire, the reason why we don't do certain things is, is because God has called you and me to live our lives away from Egypt and not in Egypt. God has called us to live our lives apart from the world, separate from the world, to live our lives as holy lives. So we listen to things and we, and we watch things or we don't listen to things and we don't watch certain things. Ultimately because we are a holy people whose lives have been radically changed by the power of the gospel. But what is Israel's problem, friend? Does Israel faithfully communicate to the next generation along the journey? Why? No, in fact, Rob, it's really interesting. Not just interesting, it's heartbreaking. On the hills of this most seminal event in all of human history, God radically providing salvation for the nation of Israel. How long did it take Israel to forget?
as you read through the expectations, particularly in Exodus chapter 12, do you think Moses is given the anticipation and expectation of how they're to engage in Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread as though it's going to be 40 years before they ever participate in that again? Or is there a sense this is going to happen next year at this same time? I want to submit to you this morning that there is a sense in Exodus chapter 12 and God's recounting of the rules for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is an expectation that that is going to happen a year from now. Why? The expectation is that the people would be so overwhelmed with joy in what God has done for them that there's no way that they could ever think of doing anything other than what God has commanded. And what happens, friends? A long narrative from Exodus chapter 10, 11, and 12 through a majority of the rest of the Pentateuch chronicles Israel's wandering in the desert because they didn't rightly tell the next generation. They didn't tell them with their words, and they didn't tell them with their actions. See, mom and dad, those two things must go together. Yes, you should tell your children what God has said. Yes, you should remind your children of what God has commanded. But that telling should not just be verbally. It should also be through your actions. And what a tragedy for so many in the evangelical world that such a bifurcation took place in the home that mom and dad communicated one thing with their words on Sunday morning and a completely something other with their actions throughout the rest of the week. Tell your children. Don't just tell them, mom and dad. Live the truth of the gospel before them. Live the truth of the feast of unleavened bread daily before your children as they see in you a godly righteousness and holiness. Tell your children, and look what verse 9 says shall happen. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Here it is again. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You see what he's saying, friends? Parents, it ought to be such a regular communication to your children that the Lord saved me. That that truth of the gospel is as though it is stamped directly upon their forehead, as though it is written on their, on their wrists, as though it is always before them. In other words, the primary narrative on the lips of the redeemed ought to be the story of Jesus. 
What's the primary narrative in your home? What's the primary narrative when you gather with your life group, when you gather with your D group at Woodlawn? What's the primary narrative when you're around unbelievers in your neighborhood and at your workplace? What is the primary narrative upon your heart? We belong to the Lord. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. Chapter 13, verses 3 through 10. The Feast of Unleavened Bread has been given to us so that we might remember God has called us to holiness, that we might leave Egypt behind. And look what happens here in verses 11 through 16. Consecration of the firstborn reminds them why. And what is the why? God saved us. God redeemed us. Here it is. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Oh, my gracious. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? Now repeated for the second time. You shall say to him by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Why do we live holy lives, friends? Because we are a redeemed people. Here in this consecration of the firstborn, we have various rules that govern what is to take place. You have rules that are to govern the firstborn of children, primarily in this text, the firstborn of sons. And then in terms of animals, you have rules that are to govern the firstborn among animals that could be sacrificed, animals that could be eaten, such as a lamb or a goat. And then you have rules and regulations for animals that were not to be eaten. They give an example here of a donkey. They were not eating donkey meat back then, and a donkey was primarily uh, serving as a tool, as an instrument for the farmer to plow a field, to make preparation for harvest. And so we have these different rules. But regardless of whether it's a child, a son that's needing redemption, 
or a firstborn animal that could be eaten that needs redemption, or a firstborn animal that could not be eaten, the concept is that of redemption. There needed to be a buyback, if you will. Ultimately, what Moses is telling them, Exodus chapter 13, verses 3 through 10, you have been brought out of Egypt. Why? Because you have been bought out of Egypt. This is what the Lord is telling us here. He's laying ultimately for the nation of Israel an image of sacrifice. But not just any sacrifice, friend. He's laying before them an image of a substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice. Every one of these firstborns, regardless of who they are, had to be redeemed. If we go back to Numbers, Numbers, even, numbers 18 even gives for us the exact expectation of how you even redeem back a child or even an animal that was to be eaten. You, you do that financially through shekels. So there's clear communication throughout the Pentateuch of exactly how one is bought back. And by the way, the buyback can't be done in a way that you think right. The buyback can only be done in the way in which God deems right. Now notice it. The temptation is going to be for you to walk out on the field on that wonderful day and say, my goodness, there is the most beautiful donkey you've ever seen in the world. And images of what this specific donkey can accomplish. How many rows in a day this donkey can fulfill. And, and you're thinking, that many rows equals this amount of money? this amount of crops and this amount of money. This is an incredible donkey. And this donkey is my donkey. I don't think the Lord saw this donkey. I'm going to keep this donkey for myself. So you bring that beautiful, nice, wonderful donkey and you bring him to your house and you put him in, his, in your barn and you say, donkey, you're going to stay here for the next one year. Well, you don't want the Lord to, to notice. We don't want God to see that I have a donkey. What's the problem with that narrative? To whom does that donkey belong? See, Moses is saying, don't miss it. Moses is saying to the people of God that along this journey there will be temptations that run past them 
that will cause them to forget the truth of the narrative of the gospel, that they are a redeemed people, or the temptation might be to think that you yourself have done something that has provided a means of redemption for you, for you at the end of the day see yourself as the one in the first position and not in God's position. So God gives us even the narrative of how redemption is brought back for the donkey. And ultimately, friends, all of this an image for what Christ has done for you and me. And so we hear the words of the birth narrative of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, don't miss the language, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be what? Called holy to the Lord. Right from the beginning of the narrative of Jesus' earthly life, friends, we see an image from the law of the Lord, Exodus chapter 13, that this one, this child, is unique. And we know the rest of the story, do we not? For Jesus has bought us out of our sin. He has brought us out of our sins. We couldn't do it ourselves. But he made a sacrifice on our behalf. And that sacrifice that Jesus made... That substitute that Jesus made was a substitute on my behalf, a substitute on your behalf. The wrath that Jesus received from the Father is a wrath that you deserved and a wrath that I deserved. But the Bible tells us that on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ on the cross bore the penalty for your sin and my sin. He paid our sin debt. Because he paid our sin debt. Because he substituted on my behalf and your behalf. You and I, by faith and hope and trust in the person of Christ, can have a right relationship with God. But don't miss it too at the end of this narrative. We're to tell it. And the overwhelming thought of redemption should be such in our hearts and in our, in our minds that it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. God, through Jesus, 
has bought us out of sin. And he's brought us to himself so that we might live holy lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the revelation of yourself. We thank you for the work of redemption that you have accomplished on our behalf. We thank you, God, that you have given to us your word whereby we can regularly be reminded of what you have done for us. And so God, now at this moment, we pause to reflect in our own hearts and our own minds of that which you have done on our behalf. Friend, would you take a few moments where you're seated today? And would you have a feast of unleavened bread where you're seated this morning? Would you be reminded this morning of what God has called you to? Holiness? Would you reflect for a few moments of where you see holiness displayed in your life? Would you thank God for that? And as Israel was to remove all leaven from their lives, would you ask God by his spirit to do that now for you? Would you ask God to remove sin from your life today? Would you recommit anew this morning to walking in holiness before the Lord? Friend, you can never walk in holiness before the Lord if you've never experienced Passover. If you've never experienced the consecration of the firstborn in the person of Christ who has substituted on your behalf, you can desire holiness all you want. You can strive and work toward right living. It will never happen. Perhaps you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. You've never believed in Jesus. And this morning through the preaching of God's word, God has, by his spirit, has taken his word and convicted you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And you realize your need before God to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ. Would you do that this morning? Would you trust in Christ? For the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you shall be saved.
In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of, of God's Word. And as we stand to sing, perhaps you're here and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. Myself and Pastor Travis will be down front. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you'd like for one of us to pray with you that indeed you might live a holy life. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected, that you need to join, that you need to be a member of, so that you can rightly live out your life before him on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Father, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we confess God's faithfulness to his people.